It's good to see you this morning. Uh, Let me invite you to be finding in your Bibles John chapter 1, verse 19. And I want to tell you as you're turning there about something of a coincidence I have been experiencing uh, as I've been preparing for this passage this morning, spending time with it. On Tuesdays, I teach a writing class for our kids' school group that they're a part of. Uh, Some of those kids in that class are sitting among you this morning. And in the last uh, couple of weeks, well, one of the things we've been talking about in that class has been story writing specifically. Uh, How you always start a story by describing two things. You describe the setting and the characters. So this last Tuesday, we were working on exactly that. Uh, And lo and behold, that is exactly what the Apostle John is doing at this opening portion of the narrative in our passage this morning. I just found that uh, pretty enjoyable to to recognize. Uh, Today, John is going to do a pretty substantial amount of work of putting all the pieces in place, all of the pieces on the game board, if you will, for the story of Jesus' work and ministry among the Jews. Uh, And before we hear the passage read together, I'd like us to uh, get a bit of a preview about how we're going to approach these verses. We'll be looking at verses 19 to 28 this morning. And we're going to move through three steps. The first thing we'll do is we're going to take some time to understand the pieces that I just mentioned that John is putting on the board, some of these characters. And we have some catch-up work to do compared to the original audience who knew a lot of these people and these groups already. So we have some things to, uh, to understand about these, about these characters in the story. So we're going to talk first about the Jews from Jerusalem we're about to hear from. We're going to hear about the priests and Levites and this group that's going to be called the Pharisees. So that's the first thing we'll do is look at those, at those uh, characters. Second, we're going to make sure that we're clear as to the setting of this account. Uh, the time, or even more importantly, the condition on the ground as these events kick off. Uh, what are the, what's the state of things as we come to this story? So that's what we'll do second, by way of setting. And then third, we'll go back to the realm of characters, uh, and we'll look at John, at John the Baptist. Because he is the question mark here in this passage this morning. And as we'll see even in verse 19, the question of that character in this story is the entire focus of what we'll look at. It's the focus of these dialogues that we're about to hear. Who are you? They're going to ask John the Baptist. So the rest of the time, we'll look at this John, and we'll learn about him through three dialogue interactions. There's going to be three question and answer back and forth that we'll see. So that's where we're going this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, verses 19 to 28. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. 
Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So we have some work to do at the outset, understanding who it is that's playing these important parts in this account. Uh, And there are three groups of people that we'll begin by looking at that are introduced to us here. Verse 19, you see what it says? This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. The first group that we find here, they're just referred to as the Jews. You need to know he's not talking about the Jews in terms of the entire ethnic or national people. Uh, the writer is going to use this designation, the Jews, a lot in this gospel. And a few times it will mean something different. There's once or twice it will mean specifically uh, a particular geographical area, uh, Jews in a particular area. But almost all the time in this gospel, the Jews refers to the Jewish leadership. And that's what it means here. Uh, They are, he says, Jews from Jerusalem. And here's a bit of a spoiler alert. Uh, The Jews in this gospel are fundamentally going to be the group of people that are opposing Jesus in his ministry. Now, we don't know that yet. These Jews are in Jerusalem, uh, and, and that's actually what is being referred to here when it says in Jerusalem. The delegation is from Jerusalem uh, but that's because the Jews who sent them are from Jerusalem. So it, original, in the original writing, it actually says Jews of Jerusalem sent. Uh, this is referring to the leadership. So we can tell that this is referring directly to the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body that presided uh, over the people, and it was presided over by the high priest of Israel. Uh, it was made up of mostly members of that man's extended family. So when the high priest undergoes a change, uh, a great deal of the leadership in the Sanhedrin undergoes a change as well. Uh, His extended family make up the chief priests. And we'll hear a lot about the chief priests in in this gospel. Now there were also scribes on the Sanhedrin uh, it is a mixed group in that, uh, in, in that political body, and we'll be talking about that some this morning. But that's the first group that we find here, the Jews. This is the Jews of Jerusalem, the Jewish leadership. Uh, and it says here in verse 19 that they sent a group, something of an emissary, a delegation, a fact-finding uh, group of people on their behalf. That second group that's mentioned here is called priests and Levites. Uh, they have been sent on behalf of these leaders, and it's their job to ask a particular question, isn't it? To come back with a particular piece of information about this John the Baptist. Now, what you need to know about 
the priests and Levites that are described here as we come into John's gospel is actually nothing at all. You don't need to know anything about them because this is the one and only time that these words, priest or Levite, are going to show up in this entire book. They do not come back again. You'll see the word chief priests. That's a different word, and it's referring to members of the Sanhedrin. This group of priests and Levites are simply the natural envoys for the family of the high priests to send. And that's because of the political situation that's going on at this moment in time. There's always politics somewhere when you're talking about a particular story, right? You can't talk for, about any story in time for long without having to have politics come in. Uh, and that is very much the case. This is, this is a political time to be sure that we're coming into. And speaking of politics then, uh, that, that's a great segue for us to bring up the third group of characters that will show up in this section that we need to know a little bit about. And that's down in verse 24. You see a reference in verse 24 to the Pharisees. Now what I think is helpful is for us to understand how these groups relate to each other. You have the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, you have priests, Levites, now you have Pharisees. How do these, um, how do these relate to one another on the scene? Uh, you know how you can have today various political offices. So you can have mayors or senators or governors or presidents, and any one of them could belong to the party of the Republicans or the Democrats, right? Or a third party. Uh, that's what we're dealing with here. Priests, Levites, chief priests, scribes, these are offices. And by contrast, Pharisee is not an office. Pharisee is a party. So in theory, you could have a priest who is a Pharisee, or that priest could belong to the other major party of the day, the Sadducees. So the two major political parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I still remember, the, at least my earliest memory of the word Sadducee, uh, that, that, uh, that I have in my, in my memory. I was probably nine or ten. It was adult Sunday school, across the way at Western Plateau Elementary School, if you were one of that group. And it was James Savage teaching, and he explained that the Sadducees did not believe in the afterlife. And that's sad, you see? And <laughs> that joke got it for me. And from that moment on, I've, I've known something about the Sadducees. So I credit James for for that little seed there. Um, in point of fact, uh, so I mentioned you could have a priest who is a Pharisee or a priest who is a Sadducee. But just like today, and this is usually the case, there usually wind up being something of pretty clear dividing lines in these things when it comes to politics. Don't there? Uh, and in their case, this is true. Most all of the priests in this day, in Jesus' day, were Sadducees. And most of the scribes were Pharisees. The scribes were the teachers of the law. They were the teachers of the people. They were the minority group because most of the priests were Sadducees. But the Pharisees had a tremendous amount of influence because they were the ones right with the people, teaching them. They had that influence. 
And they had some influence on the Sanhedrin as well. And because of the connection with the people, it was a pretty strong influence there. But they were not the majority. Now, you tell me, how well do Republicans and Democrats get along in our day today? Well, there's some clue for you as to how these two groups often got along. The answer is not very well. Uh, it's going to take something pretty big, some big common foe to unite them together. Hint, hint. And we'll leave that there. Anyway, remember some of this political scene information because when we come to the third dialogue in verse 24, uh, it's going to come back up. But that gives you a sense of some of the words that we're seeing here. We're talking about offices being sent, delegations. And we find in verse 24 that at least some of that group belong to the Pharisee party. Now, what about the setting here? We need to hear more about the, the conditions on the ground. Uh, the when and the where and the how are people feeling right now. And there are two things that, can, um, that, that we can gather about that. One from the first verse, verse 19, and one from the last verse in our section, verse 28. Let's look at the easiest one first. Look down at verse 28. Verse 28 tells us that, quote, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan. Now, we're, we're not actually sure any longer where that was. We don't have certainty as to where that city was located. In fact, for most of church history, that has been lost to us. But we know that it was beyond the Jordan. They're speaking in reference to Jerusalem. So this is a city or a town on the, the other side, the east side of the Jordan River. And if you have anything of a map in your mind about some of these things, where Jerusalem was and then the Jordan River, maybe that's helpful. If you don't, your Bible may have a map in the back, and those are there for a reason, and they're very helpful. So we're thinking about events that are happening on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, one of the things that that means for us this morning is, okay, the Sanhedrin are residing in Jerusalem. So they didn't just send a few guys down the street to go talk to this preacher over here and gather his information. They saw this, we can't be sure how far away it was because we don't know where it was, but it was a, it was a journey. They saw this fact-finding expedition as something worthy of that undertaking. This was something important. Now, that already is giving us a sense of, of the temperature of things right now, the atmosphere. And it plays into what we learn about the setting from verse 19, from the first verse. Now, what can you tell about conditions on the ground from the fact that in verse 19, the Jewish authorities send this delegation out to track down John the Baptist and gather information. Doesn't that tell you that something of a stir has been created by the time the Apostle John starts the narrative here? He starts it with John the Baptist out baptizing, and by the time this starts, some stir is already going on. Can you tell that? In fact, it's not true to say some Stir. We know from the rest of the New Testament that much stir is happening. There is a great deal of talk and questions and expectation. We read in Mark 1, verse 5, just listen to these things. Mark 1, 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
Obviously, those words all don't mean every man, woman, and child. But they mean a lot of men, woman, and child, don't they? A lot of people going out. Luke 3.15, as the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts whether John, uh, concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. This is what's going on right now, as they don't yet understand what his, what his place is, what his ministry is. So much is happening, and new things are happening, that a lot of people are wondering if he is the Messiah, come at last. Emotions are high right now. Lots of questions in the air, lots of expectation, and among the people, lots of response to his message of repentance and preparation. I mentioned the alls in Mark 1.5. In Luke chapter 7, when Jesus is speaking, and he speaks back commendingly of John the Baptist, it says, as he's commending John the Baptist, it says there that all the crowd was in agreement because they had all been baptized by John. <laughs> all of them. There's a lot of movement happening here. And by the way, just incidentally, it's, it's just, it just underscores even more to me. It's crazy to remember that what's going to alarm the Jewish leaders later will be the realization that Jesus' disciples are baptizing even more people than John the Baptist was. And yet, at the end of John chapter 2, it's going to tell us that despite that, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. I mean, there's a lot going on, a lot of excitement. As Jesus comes on the scene, he will see right through much of that. You will know the lonely road he has been brought here to walk. But regarding John the Baptist this morning, could this even be the Messiah, the Christ? This is what everyone's talking about. And you can't be in charge of the Jewish people and hear all of those questions about Messiah and not investigate. I need to know who this is. We need to know who this is. And this is why the Jewish leaders send this envoy out to John the Baptist. So we have maybe a better sense then, already quickly there, of the, the condition of things, the temperature in the room. Now let's go back to the question of characters, and we'll spend the rest of our time this morning looking at the one last character that is introduced onto the scene here. Uh, and that's because it's his identity that this entire section is about. I'm talking, of course, about John the Baptist. And we learn about him, and the envoy learns about him, through three sets of question and answer. Question number one. And I'll put it this way. It's not how it's, how it's written, but based on his answer, I'll put it this way. Question number one. Are you the Christ? They really say, who are you, in verse 19, don't they? But this is so obviously what's at the heart of that question. It's what's led them out to ask him of his identity, because that's exactly the question that John responds to. They say, who are you? And he says, I am not the Christ. <laughs> his answer that he gives in verse 20, I mean, and notice even how he words this. He gives it in such an emphatic way that this was, this was the emphasis that he's going to great pains to make directly. The apostle writes this, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. There was no need to say it that way. This is, he's going out of his way to convey 
how important it is to John the Baptist that they know who he is not. Now, why? Why is that so important to John the Baptist? We're going to see it here. But if you've been with us through the, uh, the first 18 verses, you already know the answer. John was sent, not being the light, he was sent to bear witness concerning the light. That is why he is here. It's essential to his entire purpose that they know who he is not. And so he starts that way. Now, we've already heard, I mentioned a couple of other passages in the other gospel accounts, that this notion of him as potentially the Messiah was what was going through the rumor mill, uh, the water cooler conversation. But he denies it. I am not the Christ. Let's clarify in our minds what exactly it is that he's denying when he says that. It may be for us that we've come to think of Christ as something like Jesus' last name, something like that. That's, defi- that's very much not Jesus' last name. Uh, Christ is not, properly speaking, a name. It's a title. The Christ, which means the anointed. That's the same thing that the Messiah means. Messiah and Christ are just tr- translations in two different languages of this same idea of anointed one. In the Old Testament, various people were anointed, and anointing had to do with the pouring of oil over their head. It was a a ceremonial and a symbolic gesture. And notably, the ones who were anointed in this way were priests and kings. The rite was used, in other words, to set men apart for special functions. And so as the Old Testament scriptures are given, uh, as the prophets come, And the expectation begins to grow that one day God is going to send into the world a mighty deliverer, one who would represent him in a very special sense. This coming great one was not thought of then as an anointed one, but as the anointed one. And they began waiting for the anointed one who would come, the Messiah or the Christ. Now, they have that expectation. Like every other part of, it seems, the Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus, the Jews are not clear at all on this point. Uh, Same as as, uh, many other elements of it. So there is a lot of speculation, even by Jesus' time, about this coming Messiah's role, what it will be, what it will look like. But they knew that God had promised to deliver them with some kind of anointed, chosen deliverer. And John says, I am not the anointed one. And that brings us to the second question, which really is made up of several questions in here, but I think we can characterize it as one question. You can see it in their mind. that This is the important box for them when they came to check off. Okay, he is not claiming to be the Christ. Okay, but that's okay. That's not the only in times figure we have been expecting. And so you could characterize the next question in this way. So then, John, where do you fit into our religious expectations? Where do you fit into our eschatological expectations if you are not the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One? Look at verse 21. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. 
Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Are you Elijah? They asked. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, God had said through the prophet there, quote, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord comes. Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? This is pointing back to Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses had told the people, all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so that too was a, part, a prominent part of their eschatological expectations. They've been waiting, teaching their children to wait for the prophet who will come one day. For Elijah, who will come before the end. For the Messiah. Who are these? Uh, I don't know, but I'm waiting for them. Lots of debate of whether they were the same person or two of them were the same person or these were three different individuals. Uncertainty. But they had this expectation from the scriptures. And it apparently, speaking of the prophet, it had morphed into some speculation that maybe what God was going to do was actually to resurrect from the dead one of the Old Testament prophets and send him. So Matthew 16, 14, Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And their answer there is, some were saying, maybe Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Maybe this is Jeremiah raised from the dead. You've got sort of the uh, humorous, to me at least, uh, account in Luke 9, 19, some, some people may be late to the party in all of this who had never seen Jesus and John the Baptist at the same time. Uh, they're thinking by then, by Luke 9, that Jesus maybe was actually John the Baptist raised from the dead after he had been beheaded. And I think you see in that the same kind of prophetic expectation. They're wondering if a prophet will be raised and that will be the fulfillment. And John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, this expectation of the prophet was a part of their collective experience. And again, John says, what? I'm not him. Actually, he doesn't say that. Actually, he just says, no. Now, do you notice that his answers are getting shorter every time they keep asking about him? I am not the Christ. I am not. No. Uh, you can sense, I think, that he's getting tired of these questions about himself. He's not here to talk about himself. And the more questions he gets about himself, you could imagine, the more impatient he becomes. That's what it seems from his answers. Now, I do want us to go back, though, uh, and think about the question regarding Elijah. Are you Elijah? I am not. I read for you Malachi 4, 5. God promised that he would send Elijah before the great day of the Lord would come. Was John the Baptist the fulfillment of the promise to send Elijah? Well, yes, he most certainly was. That's without question. Even in the way that he is made to present himself and the way that the New Testament writers go out of their way to, to describe him, this is clear. Listen to this, 2 Kings 
What was Elijah like? Quote, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Mark 1.6, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. Now, that's no coincidence. Mark is pointing this out. And of course, most importantly, Jesus says in Matthew 11.14, quote, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So why did John say no? That's one of those questions that troubles people sometimes. I don't, I don't understand why it would need to trouble us at all. That they ask him this question and he answers no, when in fact the answer is yes. What does that mean? Here's what that means. That means that John did not understand everything about his role in the economy of God's plan in his own time. You know who else doesn't understand everything about their role in the economy of God's plan in their own time? Everybody else. That's true for us all. John was used in a unique prophetic role, but he didn't know everything. And relatively soon, he's going to be sitting in jail, scratching his head. <coughs> scratching his head. Uh, being confused about some parts of Jesus' ministry. He doesn't fully understand Jesus' ministry. Does he fully understand his own? Of course he doesn't. And that's okay. God never reveals that to us in our own time. John understood what he was called to do. He understood what he was to obey. What he did not understand was the full-orbed value and significance that Christ was going to assign to his place in God's purposes. Do you understand that that is the case for you this morning? We make all kinds of plans and have all kinds of expectations as to the role that we will fulfill in God's plan. And it's not as if we know nothing at all, do we? We know, we know a great deal about what we are called to do. We know about what we are to obey, what obedience looks like. But really, how much of the full picture of God's purpose for you, his plans as to how he will use what you do and who you are, how much of that picture do you think you know about? We have little idea in our own time of exactly how he will use our works, our faithfulness, our example, our place in this world, our failures, our mistakes, our influence, our position. John the Baptist did not yet know the import that his Heavenly Father would choose to make of this role that he was playing. And when he has asked the question, the lofty question, are you Elijah? He can't imagine how that could be the case. He says, no. That very title which he was quick to refuse in humility was the title in honor that his Lord would bestow upon him. So now think about this delegation. 
They came to ask questions and to gather information. Uh, they have received three negative answers. What have they learned? Well, they've learned three things that he is not. They have not learned anything positive about John the Baptist at all. And because they're a group sent on someone else's behalf, that's a problem for them. Verse 22, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John, give us something to go back with. And in answer to that plea, John takes them to the book of Isaiah. This is a link that is made in all four gospel accounts, but it's the only one that tells us that John said it of himself. Look at verse 23. This is his answer. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now you think of the things he could have said in answer to that question. Very appropriate thing. I am one who comes in the name of the Lord. I am a prophet of the Most High. Was he a prophet? Jesus says that he was a prophet. You remember his questions? What did you come out to see when you came to see John the Baptist? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none. Among those born of women, none is greater than John. This is what Jesus would say of him. This man is important. But what was his purpose? His purpose was to bear witness about the true light that was coming into the world. So his answer about himself, is I'm just a voice. That's what I am. I'm a voice in the wilderness calling out, and I'm a voice with but one thing to talk about. I've got one thing. I'm a one-trick pony. I am calling you to prepare yourself for the coming of one who will come after me, and that's the end. He makes little of himself, and he's content to let Jesus make much of him later. That is not the point of this passage, but it is a good little object lesson for us to take from this, isn't it? Let another man praise you, and not your own lips. Make little of ourselves now, and leave it to the Lord. Now, as far as the main purpose of this delegation is concerned, in maybe a minimal level, maybe not the level they were hoping for, but their task is complete. They have a list of the things that he is not. Those were the important questions. And they have a statement from him to bring back to those who sent them. It's time to report back to base. But verse 24 stops that progression, that putting away of, of pencils, if you will, uh, because there is, it seems, a subgroup of this delegation that were not yet satisfied with the conversation. Verse 24 says, uh, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. That can be misleading. That makes it sound like the political party, the Pharisees, had sent this envoy of priests and Levites. That cannot be what has happened. 
here. The Pharisees would not have had any authority to do such a thing from Jerusalem, to send a delegation. And remember, it, it told us before that the delegation was sent from whom? From the Jews, from the Sanhedrin. We've already seen that the Pharisees do not even, even come near to running the show there. They are a minority group. And most of the priests and Levites are, not Sadducee, are, are Sadducees anyway. So if the Pharisees are sending a delegation, why would they send a group of priests and Levites? That's not what's happening here. What's happening is that the Pharisee party, who did have much political influence, would almost certainly have gotten some representation in a delegation like this. So some of these priests or Levites that have come in this delegation would have been chosen because they were Pharisees. You always have to satisfy. You have to play the political game. And verse 24 is telling us that as they are writing down John's answers and finishing up, those in the delegation who were Pharisees were not satisfied at all. And so they ask an additional question. Now, be ready. Remember, we already know too much as we're coming into this story. We know that the Jews of Jerusalem will fundamentally oppose Jesus. We know that the Pharisees, what do you know about the Pharisees? Positive, negative emotions come into your mind when you hear that word Pharisees. Could this maybe wind up to be a good thing by the time John's gospel is done? We don't wrestle with those questions. But we're just meeting them in the account here. And from the first words that come from the lips of those who are Pharisees, it seems to me you can almost hear a tone in their voice. Verse 25, they asked him, Then why are you baptizing? if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. They're pushing this further. What they care about is authority. Who gives you the right to baptize like you're baptizing, John? And it's not just that baptisms are happening in general that has gotten their attention. Proselyte baptism was not an uncommon thing. There's two differences in what John's doing. Number one, proselyte baptism was something that Gentiles went through in their process of coming into the Jewish people and the Jewish nation. Jews had no need to be baptized. Why would they? They were of their father Abraham. There were not Gentile world pollutions and impurities to be washed off of them. But here, John is baptizing Jews. Either something... Very wrong and horrifying is happening, or something new is happening. And they have to figure this out. That's a part of the concern. A part of the confusion as well, though, is that John is doing this in a very unique way. Even when proselyte baptism would happen, the person who was receiving the baptism baptized themselves. There was not a baptizer who baptized them. Here, John is baptizing these individuals. So, John, why this innovation? What does it mean? If there's innovation, there must be some authority behind this. That's what these Pharisees are really interested in, is authority. What gives you the authority to do what you're doing? Now, does John have authority? His authority is real. We've seen there's a number of things he could have said in answer to that question. But he's, he's a voice with one thing to say. And if he is nothing more than a voice crying out, make straight the way of the Lord, well then where is he going to go with this question of his authority? 
He'll go exactly where he goes in verse 26. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Oh, you shouldn't concern yourself with me, he says. There is somebody coming after me, and compared to him, I'm not worthy even to be called his servant. He doesn't choose here just the first example of a lowly service that can come to his mind. He is strategic. When you had a man of importance, when you had a master, that master had disciples, and there would be slaves that would attend to that master. And the, there's even, we have recorded rabbinic statements to this effect about the difference between those uh, the proper activities for disciples of a teacher compared to the slaves of that teacher. There's not much difference. Listen to what they had written. Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, except the loosing of his sandal thong. And John picks that one out and says, oh, you shouldn't worry about me, because there is one coming whose greatness is such that my worthiness, who are you, John? I am someone whose worthiness will not even allow me to untie the sandal of the one who's about to come, who stands among you. You're wasting your time asking questions about me. I'm a voice. I'm just telling everyone I can tell, make straight the way of the Lord. Repent. Prepare yourselves for this one who is coming. And let's give the Apostle John, the writer of this narrative, the credit that is due here. What is this? This is a cliffhanger right here. John says of this mysterious one, he stands among you. Do you think anyone in the crowd, when the Baptist spoke those words, looked around? And he says, and this is very ominous, this is some intense foreshadowing here. He says, you do not know him. He came into the world, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. What would it be like for one, <clears throat> excuse me, what would it be like for one such as that to be your Lord? What would that be like? Um, what honor could surpass that? That one like that would call himself your Lord. We are receiving here, early in John's gospel, notice before Jesus himself even comes onto the scene in the story, we are receiving a display of the glory and greatness of Jesus Christ. And as we close with that, 
vision of him, that sense of his greatness, let's ask the question. And let's commit to, to continuing asking this question as we go from here. Do we call him our Lord? He will say to others what he would say to us this morning. What in fact he does say to us in his word. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? What is the conclusion from such a statement, from such a challenge? Honor him as Lord. Honor him as he has been declared in his word, even in this very gospel that we're studying, as the word of God made flesh. Honor him as such. Trust him with your life. Trust him with your decisions and their outcomes. Trust him with your decisions to remain silent when it honors him in the moment. And with your decisions to speak out when it honors him in the moment. Love and support and submit to your husbands, sinners though they be. Love and protect and lead your wives, sinners though they be. Honor your father and your mother. Love your children. Lay down your lives for your brothers and sisters. Refuse to be ashamed of the cross of Christ in any situation. Do it because he told you to. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, it is our joy to obey the one who loved us and gave himself for us. John the Baptist has worked hard to create a sense of awe and expectation as to the greatness of this one to come. But it doesn't really matter how hard he works to create a sense of the greatness of Christ. When Christ does show up, we will not be disappointed. John the Baptist cannot oversell the greatness of the one that would be your Lord if you bend the knee in repentance and faith. When you have a master that you're disappointed with, you don't obey him gladly. When you have a master that you're disappointed with, you don't treasure and defend his honor. When you have a master that you are disappointed with, your life does not, <coughs> your life does not reflect contentment with the lot that he has assigned to you. May God grant that his word would have such an effect on us today and this week and long after that we would not live lives that suggest that we are disappointed with the Lord that we have been given. Let's pray together. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you this morning together as one body. And we stand in awe of your perfect plan that you have ordained and that you are bringing to completion. Father, we are in awe that the Son would come like this, take on flesh, that he could stand among men without even being noticed. Yet we know that it is not so today, Lord. His glorious display 
on display forever. Any of us that saw him now would fall to our knees before that glory. And we know, Lord, that one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. So, Lord, we pray, help us today. Help your people to better display our love and reverence for this Lord of ours. Help us to love and fear and cherish him with our whole selves. It is in his name that we ask it. In his name that we pray. Amen.